Hello, my name's Alex Rutkeen, a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity and mental health law. And what I'm going to do with you now is do a version of a talk that I gave at the Essex Autonomy Project's summer school in August 2023. Um, I'm doing it because, uh, well, frankly, slightly arrogantly, um, it might be useful for people. Um, I say that because a number of participants at the conference said that they found it quite helpful as a framing mechanism to put developments in England and Wales, but also possibly slightly wider afield in a broader context. So uh, with that, I'm gonna do the slides, share the slides, which I'll also put up on the page associated with this website. So uh, that's me, first slide. And then one thing just to say, this is a personal view only. Um, it relates in part to law reform uh, endeavours with which I've been involved, for instance, with the Law Commission of England and Wales. It also relates to some cases I've had involvement with. At all times, I'm speaking entirely personally, not in not on behalf of any of the bodies or in relation to uh, any of the clients uh, I may have acted for. So what I just wanted to do very briefly was do an outline of the law in England and Wales just for people who aren't familiar with it, and for people who are familiar, just sometimes it's helpful just to take a step back and just look at the whole thing. So firstly, think about the Mental Capacity Act of 2005. So there's a functional definition of capacity. So in other words, this idea that we think, can this person make the decision that they need to make at this point in time, or is that there's some reason that they're unable to understand, retain, use and weigh the relevant information or to communicate their decision. That's to be differentiated from, for instance, status-based tests of capacity. You have schizophrenia, therefore you don't have the legal ability to make any decisions or an outcome-based. You're making decisions we don't like, therefore you don't have capacity. Although, of course, always we need to be careful to be thinking, well, are, for instance, people with anorexia routinely treated as unable by virtue of their anorexia to be able to make decisions about nutrition and hydration? On the other side of capacity, there's a concept of best interests. And as I say here, and I'll come back to this in the context of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, it's refined by judicial interpretation. It's perhaps, in fact, I'd say definitely evolved quite a long way from the, the understanding of best interests, which might have been understood to be the case when the Mental Capacity Act came in in 2007. It's really much more framed around now the idea, as the Supreme Court has said, of putting yourself in the shoes of the person. I would just say it is, of course, entirely possible to put yourself in someone's shoes and walk the other direction, but at least a conceptual move to thinking that's what we're trying to do, rather than simply say, what do we professionals think is the right thing to do, therefore that's the right thing for this person. That's a big move. And the best way, I think, of thinking about the Mental Capacity Act is to think about it as a workaround for the, someone's inability to give the consent that they need to give to acts of care and treatment. Because if you carry out an act of care and treatment on someone who doesn't have consent, capacity to consent, you're assaulting them. So we need a workaround. That's what the Mental Capacity Act is doing. And it's also a workaround for someone's inability to enter into binding contractual or other relations in the property sphere. In some ways, therefore, actually, the Mental Capacity Act is really just a sort of misleading term misleading name because as I sort of flag up at the end, 
it's not actually about an act of work, what it means to have or lack of mental capacity for purposes. It's more limited. It's very important, but it's more limited. It's functions on the basis of a series of graduated safeguards. And one thing I, 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 from long experience, comparative experience that people in other jurisdictions, including I should say in Scotland, which approaches things differently, find difficult sometimes to get their heads around slightly, is that the Mental Capacity Act really has baked into it in the care and treatment zone, this idea of informality. You don't need to get formal authority from a court. You don't get need to get a formal decision maker appointed, nor is there a formal decision maker appointed by operation of law. Section five Mental Capacity Act provides the ability to proceed in relation to care and treatment on the basis of a reasonable belief uh, in lack of capacity and reasonable belief in best interests. But then as things get more serious and particularly also in relation to property and affairs, there needs to be formal authority. And then there's a framework for administrative authorization of deprivation liberty, which was added in 2009. I'll come back to that. So that's mental capacity yet. Mental health act, not capacity based. And that's unlike legislation in some other countries, for instance, Scotland, which has got a sort of capacity idea, significantly impaired decision making at the heart of its mental health legislation. So it's not capacity based, it's basically risk based, risk to the person, risk to other people in the presence of mental disorder. Unlike legislation in some other countries, many other countries, actually, it's not based on judicial decision-making at the outset. It's based on administrative detention, followed by a right of challenge to a tribunal. So we detain first, you challenge afterwards. And as I say in that bullet point there, there's a coercive framework creeping into the community. Mental Health Act was originally really intended only to be about hospitals, but we've seen it spread over time, for instance, in relation to things like community treatment orders. That third big bullet point on the page is actually almost the most important point that anyone I think can make about either the Mental Capacity Act or the Mental Health Act. Neither of them explain why people are intervening, in particular state agents. People quite often in the context of, of active care and treatment in relation to people with cognitive impairments say, go straight to, for instance, questions of capacity. That's to me is to start in the wrong place. You need to be, be very clear. It's not explaining why someone's intervening. It's explaining how they can intervene. Is it intervening on the basis we think this person has capacity to consent to whatever it is we're proposing and therefore engage with them on a capacitous basis if it's outside the mental health that zone, or is it they lack capacity and we're thinking about best interests? Critically, the duties to intervene always come from elsewhere. Quite often, they are coming from obligations imposed by the European Convention on Human Rights, domesticated through the Human Rights Act. Obligations, for instance, to secure people's right to life, balanced against the fact you can't simply rampage around trying to secure life at all costs if that involves, for instance, arbitrarily locking someone up. Sitting alongside all of that is the common law, judge-made law, which still governs really very many fundamental relations, hence why the Mental Capacity Act is a misnomer. Because the concept of, for instance, capacity to enter into a contract isn't governed by the Mental Capacity Act. The Mental Capacity Act provides a workaround for people who don't have that ability, but the test for capacity is actually um, 
uh, common law. It's also uh, the test for making a will. Disposing of one's uh, property after death is governed by the common law. And we've also got the common law, the high court judges inventing the solution to what happens where the person has capacity to make the decision, applying a mental capacity act, but appears in some way to be vulnerable. And I should say that's the term the High Court uses. And for people who are interested in vulnerability from a theoretical perspective, I really strongly advise them to look at the judgments of the High Court inherent jurisdiction to see how vulnerability tracks out in real life before the courts. What is it that is perceived to make people vulnerable? Is it situational? Is it something about the person? And you might be interested here to have a look at a paper led on by Dr. Kevin Arrio, which you can find by my website on my website, which looks at different factors that the courts have tried to take into account when working out interpersonal influence. But the High Court has developed this inherent jurisdiction as so-called safety net for people who do have capacity but are vulnerable. No one really knows quite how far it goes and quite how far in particular it can be directed against the person to tell them to do something they've got capacity to say, to make a decision about. So against that background, let's just look at some reform debates. And I'm recording this late August, 2023. So let's just think about ones going at different stages, speeds. The first is what I'm calling the slow burn. This is capacity-based deprivation of liberty, running from 2014 onwards. And this arises from two things. The first is a Supreme Court decision, English Supreme, UK Supreme Court decision, a case called Cheshire West. And at the same time, House of Lords scrutiny, parliamentary scrutiny of the Mental Capacity Act saying the administrative framework I mentioned really didn't work. Leading to a law commission project between 2015 and 2017, I was involved with it, but I'm talking personally here. I think the really critically important thing to, to, to get across here when one's looking at, we're, we're talking in this talk here, or I'm talking in this talk here, big picture stuff. The critical thing is this is about a concept of confinement, which is maximalist. The Supreme Court in Cheshire West gave about as wide a definition of the idea of deprivation liberty in the context of care and treatment as it is possible to give. So any time somebody is confined, so they're not free to leave, they're subject to continuous supervision and control. Any time they're confined and the state is either directly involved, state institution, state commission care, or the state ought to know, private confinement, for instance, by a family member, that the state should know about it. Any time that confinement is going on and the person doesn't have, and the courts to date have said, the Mental Capacity Act capacity to consent, there is a deprivation of liberty, even if that is in line with the person's known will and preferences. So even if it seems to be tracking through what the person actually wants, if they don't have capacity, what that person wants can't legally be taken into account. Um, parenthetically, for people who are interested in thinking a bit more about this and whether that's really right, um, there's a paper I've written, which you can find on my website, thinking about Cheshire West and the CRPD and thinking about the concept of valid consent and whether the law at the moment in England and Wales isn't allowing us to respond properly to the situation where, yes, the person doesn't have MCA capacity, 
to consent to confinement, but they nonetheless seem to be doing something more than merely putting up with it. They actually seem actively to wish it. Paper on my website, but the law as it stands, maximalist. So everybody with complex care needs, whether at home, whether in supported living placement, whether in an institution, any of these places, looks like they're deprived of their liberty. Lucy Series has written a brilliant piece of, uh, a, a brilliant book about this, which, uh, and you can find a discussion with her on my website, looking at this idea of social confinement, social care confinement, very, very different to traditional conceptions of psychiatric detention. We're miles outside locking people up in psychiatric hospitals, which is where a lot of the case law in this area came from. Came from. I'm not saying that we're not still locking people up in psychiatric hospitals. We're going to come to that. I'll come on to that in a second. But we're having a very maximalist conception of co coercion here. Because everyone's deprived of their liberty, the current system can't cope. Legislation was passed in 2019. As of April 2023, this legislation designed to provide a framework, an administrative framework for essentially everybody, was delayed until after the end of this life of this parliament. We don't know what is going to happen to it, to the so-called liberty protection safeguards. The faster burn, moving on, Mental Health Act reform, starting in 2017. That was a political initiative. It didn't come from the courts. It was a political initiative. It was then Prime Minister Theresa May commissioned an independent review, really concerned about two things. One, about rising rates of mental health at detention, and actually two, almost the thing that Theresa May herself seems to be most troubled about, massive racial disparities in the use of the mental health act, specifically in relation to black people. The Mental Health Act Review uh, reported in 2018, I was the legal advisor to the review. I'm not speaking on behalf of the review. Just to really kind of summarise what the review was thinking about, it partly thought about increasing the threshold for detention. That might be one way of making it, of slowing the rates of detention. A focus on a constrained increase in autonomy, not making it, for instance, capacity based so that if you've got capacity, you can never be detained, nor saying, you can never be provided with medical treatment for mental disorder against your will, but trying to make it legislatively such that it was much more difficult to provide treatment against what someone's will. And non-legislative tools, thinking about in particular the fact that a lot of the problems that the review uncovered, in fact, were well known before, but the review really crystallized in relation to the Mental Health Act, is not so much legislation, it's more about cultures. How it, and how can you change cultures, professional cultures? Many of the times that's not really by legislative tools, that's by non-legislative tools. One thing to flag is that prevention of detention was largely out of scope. And you might think that in any situation where the review is, is being asked, a review is being asked to look at, well, how does the Mental Health Act operate? A review which is not being asked to look at Think about all the situations which might arise where, if things aren't done, it might give rise to the need to think about detention. You might think that a review is only ever able to look at half of the picture. So draft legislation was put before Parliament in 2022. 
It was scrutinised by a committee, Joint Committee of the House of Lords, House of Commons, non-partisan, bipartisan membership drawn from um, all uh, parties and, as it were, no parties. General approval of the, the direction of travel, where actually criticism came in, they were primarily um, that the, the, the review's recommendations um, hadn't necessarily been tracked in full, and please could you go back to what the review is recommending? We don't know, as of August 2023, what is happening in this regard. And one thing I simply cannot not say or cannot pass, we, we can't pass on without highlighting this, racial disparities have only worsened in the interim. You are now nine times more likely, I think it was seven when the review reported, you are now nine times more likely, if you're black, to be subject to a community treatment order than if you are white. It cannot be the case that black people are nine times more likely to have mental health conditions than white people. There are a multitude of other things going on which really require interrogation and interrogation, transparency, accountability to then try and work out how to respond. But the racial disparities are deeply, deeply challenging and are only worsening. So that leads me, uh, as it were, neatly, if depressingly, on to thinking about actual reform that has taken place. Shenny's Law. So Ola Shenny, known as Shenny Lewis, he was a 23-year-old black man. He died as a result of prolonged police restraint in mental health hospital in 2010. And when you get the slides to this, when you look at the slides to this, I really strongly recommend you click on that hyperlink, which takes you to a video which really gets to the heart of many of the why Shenny's law is so important. It actually relates to it. <laughs> Uh, it's a curious uh, tale which relates to an art project which was installed outside the hospital where Shenny had died, which wasn't specifically about him, but onto it was graffitied R.I.P. Shenny. And the film then looks at, well, why was that done? And then partly how does the artist respond, but much more, how does the mental health racism play into the UK's mental health crisis? And after a really sustained campaign, in particular by Shenny's mother, Aji Lewis, the Mental Health Unit's Use of Force Act came into force in 2022, passed in 2018 into force in 2022. It's got a very broad definition of force, physical, mechanical, chemical restraint, and it's about, and all the isolation of patients, about people in mental health units. Importantly, it's not saying you are never allowed to use force. What it's really going for is transparency and accountability. Being really transparent about why force might be being used and being accountable, for instance, by way of policies um, where force has been used. Interestingly, uh, the first reported case decided about it, Norfolk and Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust and HJ, actually had nothing to do with the sort of force that you might think this was uh, directed at, uh, not least because the individual in question, it, it, it was about uh, the individual in question was not being restrained, for instance, by police. Actually, this was about securing physical health treatment for a detained mental health patient. A really difficult, challenging case. She suffered from constipation as a result of a bowel condition, the evidence as recorded in the judgment was is not that that bowel condition was, for instance, caused by the side effects of medical treatment for mental disorder. It was a bowel condition she had pre-existingly. She really seriously needed 
uh, she was seriously constipated. She needed routine enemas. She didn't have the capacity to make the decision whether or not to have them, and she really hated having them. Force was going to need to be used. I think it's fair to say that's not what the founder, not the creators, the drafters of Shenny's Law thought was necessarily being uh, captured by this. But this is a law, but this case exemplifies or addresses how part of the use of this law is that it's then going to be very clear about why force might be used in HJ's case and how people can be held accountable. So two questions for people. The first, just trying to reflect on things, why was Shenny's law passed when other legislative efforts have or seen at the time of recording in August 2023 to be stalling? And then the question for me, I have to say, which, which really is fundamental, is it going to work, Shenny's Law? And critically, what does working mean? And I think that last question there, I, I have to say, from my now really quite extensive experience of law reform efforts, both here and around other countries around the world, that's the, well, apart from this, it's not just a million dollar question, but it's so important because unless actual change is produced and unless people have got an agreed idea about what actual change is, a law reform or reform can be, uh, in Shakespeare's words, I'm trying to get a mangle, sound and fury signifying nothing. And then lastly, just to wrap up for people thinking about this in England and Wales, just to, to give you one heads up, the powers of attorney bill is likely to be the only mentally, mental capacity reform implemented by the current government. Um, and what it's doing is it's actually a private member's bill, but it's um, uh, backed by the government and it's making very rapid uh, 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 passage through Parliament, bipartisan support. It's largely procedural changes to the creation of powers of attorney, lasting powers of attorney, and a really heavy duty push for digital first. Need always to flag there, digital first is fantastic for those people who are readily digitally native digitally confident. That is not everyone. I also can't help but, but make a small plea or a small note. The Law Commission back in 2017 said, why don't we set in motion the power to create potential supported decision-making schemes? Influenced by what was going on in Ireland at the time and has now very recently actually been implemented in Ireland, why don't we provide for that to sit alongside powers of attorney People might think that the powers of attorney bill is a missed opportunity to implement that. So let's just now move a bit, move the, 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 the zoom lens out a bit and just think a bit about autonomy, because much of what we're talking about in this context is about the place of autonomy. So two things just to think about. The first is in relation to uh, autonomy, well, autonomy being put under the spotlight in a range of different ways. The first is in relation to assisted dying or assisted suicide. People have different names. Uh, it, it partly uh, uh, illuminates how they feel about it. In very high level summary, court challenges are firmly closed down. The Supreme Court's made it very clear that it's not interested in judges trying to make the law here. That's by contrast to, for instance, what's happened in Canada. Repeated private parliamentary bills haven't been given time to progress where in fact they've passed, made any progress at all. There, at the time of recording, there's a Health and Social Care Committee of the Westminster Parliament inquiry underway. And I, for one, am going to be extremely interested to see the fruits of that inquiry because they're making a very sustained effort to look at 
how countries around the world are addressing matters and the experiences of countries around the world, which I think is really vital, if I may say so, for properly informing debating. And then I also just wanted to use this opportunity to flag two recent cases of autonomy before the courts. And one might think about the limits of autonomy. So the first is a Supreme Court case called McCulloch and others versus Fourth Valley Health Board. There, the Supreme Court made it really clear. Whereas it's for the patient who's got capacity, the adult patient with capacity to make a decision about whether or not to have treatment offered to them by the doctor, and to make that decision, they needed to be given. They need to be given all the information that would be relevant to them, and what's relevant to them should be judged by what they think is relevant and what would be sensibly seen as relevant to them, not what the doctor would like to provide. That's an earlier case called Montgomery. McCulloch says you don't transpose that reasoning to the decision making about what treatments, what alternative treatments are reasonable. So the doctor doesn't just go, here is every single possible treatment I could possibly imagine, you choose. The doctor goes, what do I think is the reasonable set of treatments option here? And if the doctor is acting within a, a body of recognised medical opinion, that is what they're required to do. Even if there might be other options out there which they don't think are clinically appropriate. So that's really saying the doctor has a very important role here. The second case is a case called JJ, and that's about a quadriplegic prisoner, full mental capacity, unimpaired mental capacity, entirely dependent on others to be fed. Being kept alive by clinically assisted nutrition and hydration, but what he really needed, what he really wanted, were boiled sweets, crisps and biscuits. Being provided with boiled sweets, crisps and biscuits placed him on the evidence, and it's a very fact-specific case, on the evidence before the court, placed him at very high risk of choking. And there, as I've summarised it or outlined there, the critical thing before the, the court was, well, what at what point can healthcare professionals say, we think that the risks to us, for instance, a criminal prosecution, are unacceptable? Can we be forced to provide treatment in the face of that, those risks? And the answer from the High Court and much more recently, the Court of Appeal was, no, they can't be. It may be that the case goes far further uh, to the Supreme Court, but this is a really important case or an interesting, and uh, interesting case showing where the limits of autonomy might be, where other people are involved. But can I just please emphasise this is a very fact specific case about the risks on in that particular individual prisoner's situation or individual person. It's irrelevant he was a prisoner here. This is not a license to go around and be entirely risk averse and say, we healthcare professionals will never offer anything where there's any risk involved at all. That's not what the Court of Appeal was saying. So continuing to zoom out and place things in their context, thinking a bit about the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with it, there's an extensive literature out there. I really strongly recommend the work of Lucy Series. On her, in particular, her blog is a really easy way in the small places. So UN Convention, signed by the United Kingdom, ratified by the United Kingdom, it's not domesticated in English law in the same way as, for instance, the European Convention on Human Rights is. And the Supreme Court in that JB case there made very clear that means that you can't rely on the UNCRPD to say, 
my rights under that convention have been violated by a public body in the English courts. And so what it is, it's a state level obligation to be saying we want to make sure that our laws broadly comply, or our laws comply with what the UNCRPD says. And I think it's important to flag it is at some level, kind of fundamental level, losing judicial hearts and minds. So in Cheshire West, Lady Hale placed heavy reliance on the right to liberty in the UNCRPD to emphasise why she was giving such a broad definition of deprivation liberty. Because she says the right to liberty must mean the same for everybody, including those with impairments, those with disabilities. By the time you get to JB, the Supreme Court, which no longer has Lady Hale on it, is saying, well, the CRPD is not part of the law of England and Wales. And actually, we really also don't think that in that case, the CRPD is telling us that it's discriminatory to have a test for capacity to make decisions about sexual relations, which requires the person involved, irrespective of whether or not they've got a dis with a disability, the person involved to have to be able to understand, retain, use and weigh the fact that their prospective sexual partner is consenting, able to, and is consenting to that encounter. It was said that the CRPD, and in particular the right to legal capacity, equal recognition before the law, mandated an approach which said, no, you don't need to be able to understand that the other person is consenting. The Supreme Court says, uh, no, that's not discriminatory. I think more broadly, there is a definite sense that the human rights climate in England and Wales is somewhat chilly at the moment. The temperature may be warmer in August 2023. The human rights climate is chilly. That's politically, but it's also at judicial level. So, for instance, by way of an example, the Supreme Court case of Maguire, which concerned whether the state had failed in its duty to secure the right to life of a woman, Jackie Maguire, who died in a care home, where in very short summary, sufficient steps weren't taken to make sure that she was taken from the care home to hospital when she developed sepsis. She was terrified of going to hospital. She didn't have the capacity to make the decision to go. It was very likely she was going to be, need to be restrained. And the Supreme Court looked at matters in a very narrow way, one might think. They looked at each individual agency involved and said, did they specifically discharge their obligations? A systems level approach, a broader level approach would have said, well, it's the state corporately which has to secure the right to life of someone in Ms. McGuire's position, deprived of her liberty under Doyle's authorization in a care home. The Supreme Court didn't do that. That case, I know, may be going to the European Court of Human Rights, which might take a different view. And then lastly, sorry, in a way, going back to the CRPD, I think it's also just important to flag that I'm not sure, and this isn't really about a kind of political point about the attitudes, for instance, by the Conservative government towards human rights. I think actually it's important to draw out more broadly. I'm not sure it can be said that there's actually a consensus, a societal consensus, in favour of an approach associated with the Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and those affiliated with them, an approach I've characterised there as hardline and set down in things like General Comment 1 about Article 12 to the CRPD, which says, um, essentially, you can never be detained for purposes of providing you with treatment for mental disorder, 
You can never be treated absent your capacitor's consent, whether for mental disorder or otherwise, and actually a fundamental challenge to the idea of capacity, that the idea that mental capacity is an invalid, illegitimate concept. I don't think, based on my experiences in different contexts, that it can be said there is a societal consensus that, that you know, those propositions are in fact true. And so there are some really challenging issues about navigating arguments in relation to the CRPD. One thing I would just say here is I think it's very important when people are thinking about the CRPD that in some ways they, they latch on to almost the most neglected bit of the CRPD, certainly almost in England and Wales, which is Article 19, the right to live independently in a community, or actually as the French language has it, and I think the French language has a much better handle what it means, autonomy de vie, autonomy de vie, the autonomy of life. Article 19, if that was really the subject matter of people's concern, that would mean, for instance, people would have been really interested in the Mental Health Act review, not about what label do we put on detention, what's the threshold we put on detention. They'd be really interested in how do we make sure that people are supported to live independently in the community, which means, apart from the else, we provide support that they need so that detention simply doesn't enter the equation. So I think some of the many of the arguments about should detention be outlawed have actually just given in some ways the CRPD a bad name in some circles and lost focus on, for instance, thinking in particular about really important things like autonomy devi, devi rather. So let's just have a little bit of look around the world, starting with the UK. Northern Ireland, capacity legislation has been enacted, but implementation has been stalled beyond essentially a deprivation liberty framework. If you want to see some of the tracking out of that problematically, you might be interested in seeing a presentation I gave to the Muckamore Abbey Inquiry earlier in 2023, an inquiry into abuse at a learning disability, a hospital for people with learning disabilities in Northern Ireland. I'll give you the link at the end to the slides from that presentation, but you can also find a recording of the presentation of the day's, day's evidence I gave, where you really start seeing how some of the problems with only partial implementation are really coming home to roost in some of these environments. In Scotland, the Scott Review of Mental Health Law, so not just mental health actually, but mental capacity law, reported, Scottish government has responded, very broad terms of reference and much broader ranging recommendations in consequence than, for instance, the, the, the Independent Review in England, founded on the COPD and, for instance, founded on imp important things, really critical things like Article 19 COPD. But what's actually going to be taken forward and when is the million dollar question. Ireland legislation, which I mentioned earlier in the context of inspiring things from the Law Commission in England and Wales, their 2015 Act finally came into force in April 2023, a hugely ambitious piece of legislation, really thinking in particular about supports for decision making before you get to a point where someone may lack capacity and really creative tools there. Hugely ambitious. I should say some fundamental uh, gaps with it, not least uh, deprivation of liberty, but also about the regulation of informal acts of care and treatment, including informal acts going on at, for instance, the hospital setting, doctor-patient uh, relationships. Don't have time to go into it here, but those sort of things are going to have to be worked out by the courts in Ireland 
whilst I know also that professional liberty is likely to be the subject of further legislative manoeuvres then. And then wider trends. So we've got lots of reforms influenced by the CRPD. So just to pick a couple of random examples, Norway moved to capacity-based mental health legislation in 2017. Of course, if the idea of mental capacity is illegitimate, uh, how is that a good move? But it does at least move further away or further towards the idea that detention should only ever be taking place in the context of where someone is suffering from sufficient mental health crisis as to not be able to make decisions about their care and treatment. Law reforms in different places in, in Australia and many civil law jurisdictions relating to legal capacity, especially in Latin America. I think it's really important for people from common law jurisdictions like in England and Wales to interpret those reforms appropriately. Legal capacity actually is hugely important in England and Wales. We just don't talk about it. We don't have a piece of legislation which says there is a thing called legal capacity. Interestingly, there is a piece of legislation in Scotland, but Scotland has got a civil law tradition and they've got the Age of Legal Capacity Act. So we've got legal capacity permeating things, but we don't talk about it expressly. Civil law countries, including Latin America, have a very clear idea of legal capacity. And if you lack it, you suffer what some people call a legal death. And so they have constitutions or codes which now are changing, saying no one ever suffers legal death. But that doesn't mean, in concrete terms, that that doesn't mean that people are, for instance, not provided with care and treatment in circumstances where applying any outside perspective, it would be seen that they lacked capacity to make decisions. So it's really important to be clear and to interpret those, the, those reforms appropriately. There is certainly, and this is very strongly influenced by the CRPD and the work of the CRPD committee, increased recognition of the need for and tools to support coercion, the reduction of coercion in a whole series of zones. And Shenley's law could be seen as an example of that. Reduction by transparency and accountability. But then there are also a lot of you, and here I'd really single out the work of Piers Gooding and his colleagues in Australia, really looking at a whole suite of non-legislative tools to find ways to, that we don't have to think about coercion as a first response. And lots and lots of work being done about tools to support the exercise of legal capacity. Whether that be tools to support people to make their own decisions, but also tools to support people to plan in advance in the event they're not able to make decisions. I'll just single out here, for instance, the work of the European Law Institute, which is working on model laws to think about advanced choice documents, which might be implemented in member states or states across Europe and possibly more broadly. And I've already, already alluded to this continuing debate about whether CRPD compliance requires the abolition of even capacity-based legislation providing for involuntary care and treatment. And I've said, and I'm really happy to be challenged on this, I don't think there's a societal consensus in England and Wales, and I don't think actually elsewhere that there's a societal consensus that is in fact what the CRPD requires, or the CRPD as a convention, as opposed to how it is, how it's been interpreted by people associated with it. And I would also flag and ask the question, is the CRPD committee changing its mind about capacity? That I developed more in that second article there, mental capacity, why look for a paradigm shift, but it really relates to the way in which the CRPD committee has endorsed the work of the Australian Law Reform Commission in Australia 
work, the work of the Australian Law Reform Commission, hugely important, really detailed work, thinking about how to operationalize the right to equal recognition before the law. But it is founded on an idea that mental capacity or the concept of mental capacity is not a fundamentally discriminatory concept. So the CRPD committee couldn't have endorsed that work whilst at the same time saying mental capacity is illegitimate. So very lastly, these are some resources. The first is a presentation to the Muckamora Abbey Inquiry. Those are the slides which look at mental health law in a bit more detail in, in Northern Ireland, but they also look at uh, England and Wales, Scotland, Republic of Ireland, and some wider trends. You might notice a couple of slides here that look vaguely familiar. Um, and also, as I said, the, the presentation I gave, if you, you can find on the Muckamore Abbey Inquiry website, and you can start seeing how the failure to implement all of the Northern Ireland legislation, capacity legislation, is leading to some very difficult issues. That second article is really trying to think through about the validity of the concept of, the mental, of mental capacity and looking at why some of the challenges to it associated with the CRPD committee are actually problematic in and of themselves. More mundanely at one level, but perhaps more usefully for many people, that third bullet point are, is the mental capacity law database that we maintain in my chambers that has got cases from the Court of Protection. It's got guidance notes about thinking about capacity, for instance. Um, it's also got a newsletter, a report you can sign up to for free, which comes out most months. The fourth bullet point is the Mental Health and Justice uh, website. That's a project. Actually, that bottom picture you can see, that picture you can see is in fact one of the boards which was outside the Bethlehem Hospital uh, where Shenny Lewis died. And that's one of the boards which was um, uh, graffitied with RIP Shenny. So the Mental Health and Justice Project, a large project which ran from 2017 to 2022, thinking about difficult issues when thinking about mental health and justice, not just criminal justice, but also how we think justly about, for instance, empowerment versus protection. And then last, fourthly, mental capacity law and policy. That's my website you've probably already stumbled on because this talk is on that website. It's got videos about matters relating to English law, but it's also got lots of discussions with people with important and interesting things to say about capacity and mental health, not just from England and Wales, but further uh, further afield. Lastly, my Twitter handle, you're very welcome to, to follow me on Twitter. Always like questions. Um, I'm afraid I can't give legal advice directly. But otherwise, thank you very much indeed for your time.